головой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRV podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org. Hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is a recording of a live interview I did with Margaret Peacock on the image of children in the Cold War as part of our fall series, We Shall Refashion Life on Earth, Youth in Eurasia and Beyond, in the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. I hope you enjoy the interview. In the 1950s and 60s, images of children appeared everywhere, from movies to milk cartons, their smiling faces used to sell everything, including war. Soviet and American leaders, too, used emotionally charged images of children to create popular support for their policies at home and abroad. This live interview with Margaret Peacock will discuss her work on the deep symmetry in how Soviet and American propagandists mobilize similar images of children to similar ends, despite their differences. Margaret Peacock is an associate professor and director of undergraduate studies in the Department of History at the University of Alabama. Her research interests range from the history of the Soviet Union, the Cold War, the Middle East, childhood, and media. She's the author of Innocent Weapons, the Soviet and American Politics of Childhood in the Cold War, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2015. Her new book that is in the works is tentatively titled Frequencies of Deceit, Propaganda in the Post-Truth Middle East. Here is Margaret Peacock. So I thought we'd start the conversation about your book and this larger topic of how Soviet Union and um, the United States understood each other's children, just with a question of how you came to this topic, what inspired you to write it, um, et cetera. Okay, well, Sean, first let me say thank you so much for having me. You and I have known each other since grad school, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been a long time and it's it's been great to see us both grow up a little yeah. bit. Um, but uh, actually, this project um, came to me as projects often do serendipitously. I was, um, I had just spent a day working in the Lyndon Johnson Presidential Archives in Austin, where I was a grad student, and um, had spent the day watching uh, campaign advertisements, and had actually watched the original uh, footage of the Daisy ad. I don't know if you guys. Remember the Daisy ad with the little girl picking the flowers and the countdown and then the bomb goes off and it was Lyndon Johnson's famous um, anti-Goldwater um, advertisement that actually only ran once. It only aired once, but it created such a uh, fervor um, that it was pulled from the air and, and then the news agencies continued to replay it for three weeks straight afterward. Um, and so uh, it became this really, one of the most famous pieces of American propaganda ever made. And of course there was a child at the center of that story, this, that ad. Um, and then I was in my car and it was 2003 and I was driving um, home and uh, George W. Bush got on the, on the radio on NPR and said, we have to invade Iraq to defend America's children. Um, from weapons of mass destruction. And I thought, well, there's something there. Uh, and look at that, this image just keeps popping up. And um, interestingly, I had come across it in the Soviet sources uh, in a, another research paper I was writing um, that same semester. And that was how I came upon this idea that um, nobody's really taken, had taken the time to sort of examine what the image of the child means, um, what significances it can carry, um, and, and how it in many ways was a barometer for understanding the politics of the Cold War 
um, you know, on a, on a really big scale. So that's how I got to the project. Now, it's interesting, early in your introduction, though, uh, of your book, Innocent Weapons, the Soviet and American politics of childhood in the Cold War, you state that your book is not about real children. Rather, you say it's about the manufacture of idealized and threatened children for the purpose of building domestic and international consensus for the Cold War. Talk a bit about what you mean by this, that you're not dealing with real children, but about these manufactured images for the Cold War. Right. So there's a lot going on, admittedly, in that sentence. Um, you know, there are people who do children's history and they unpack the history of children's lives and children's experiences, and that's a really important field. But it struck me early on that this was a project that wasn't really about real children at all. This was a project that was about the manufacturing of images of children um, by adults for for political purposes. Um, and so that that's really sort of where that that, that distinction needed to get made pretty quickly. But it, it became pretty obvious to me when I really sat down to start doing this research that um, both the Soviet Union and the United States throughout the course of the Cold War um, manufactured shockingly similar images of children um, for perhaps shockingly similar purposes um, throughout the course of certainly the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, on the one hand, they manufactured these images of idealized children, um, innocent kids, uh, and, and that idealized vision of the Soviet child for the Soviets or the American child for the Americans um, obviously functioned as a, a metonym, um, a reflection of uh, each side's um, national strength, um, each side's uh, legitimate claim um, to power, um, each side's leg legitimate claim to the way that it was waging the Cold War. Um, if we if we don't continue to fight the Cold War the way we're fighting it, if we don't continue to defend freedom, whether it's the communist or the capitalist version, uh, you know, the children will be damaged and the children are innocent and need to be protected. At the same time uh, that they were doing that, they were they were they were projecting this image of a threatened child um, that was very much at risk. That again legitimized um, sometimes policies, domestic policies, and international policies that would otherwise, you know, raise suspicion. So um, you you create an image of of threatened children, both your own children being threatened and the other side's children being threatened by the system in which they exist. Uh, in order to calcify a vision of the other as as perfidious. Um, and so that argument definitely came in. And all of this, of course, was done to create a sense of um, domestic consensus uh, that to 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 project an, a message that if if we don't all sort of get on board with the defense of the status quo, um, with uh, sort of supporting those who are in power, uh, we're not going to be able to protect our own kids. And of course, if we can't protect our own kids, then we have no legitimate right um, to be on this planet at all, right? Because that's sort of our, our mandate, our primary mandate as adults. Um, and interestingly, this is a vision that crosses ideological lines, right? And that's was one of the things that I found most surprising was that these, these constructions of these images were super similar on both sides. What was the image of the child like before the Cold War? How did, how did yeah. they function in a, a Soviet and American kind of imagery and discourse? Well, you know, I think you could um, make the argument that the modern image of the innocent and threatened child uh, really pops up at the end of the 18th century um, at this sort of confluent moment when we have uh, the rise of the nation state um, the rise of modern propaganda, and all, of course, are all wrapped up with the French Revolution to some extent, um, and and the rise of the the image um, of the modern child. And this happens for a whole series of reasons that children's historians have written about. People like Philippe Arias have written about, um, you know, children all of a sudden start to survive. Right, children are are living past the age of five now, and so more obviously, lots of children live past the age of five before the 18th century, but. Lots of children, uh, mortality rates are really improving, um, and so children's roles are changing. Um, they are increasingly not necessarily uh, just being used for labor. They're being they're they're objects of uh, 
you know, of real investment. And of course, these lines are fuzzy, and I don't want to sort of be too draconian about how we understand that people, you know, Neolithic man cared about his children, right? Everybody cared about their children. But um, nonetheless, there's this image that that begins to calcify, I think, in the late 18th century of the, the child as wrapped up in the identity of the nation, um, and that, that children and the nation are integrally tied to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in order to defend one, you must defend the other. One, in fact, embodies the other. Yeah. And, and I think that that lasts, it persists. It persists in the United States and in Imperial Russia in very similar ways. Um, you know, governments perpetually justify themselves by their professed ability to be the best ones to protect the young, yeah. right? Um, so that that's definitely starts then, and then it continues on. It changes though in the Cold War. Um, when the when the Cold War happens, things shift a little, and whereas the child had previously always been an image of innocence that needed to be protected, a potential image of threat, right? That had to also be pr- that was threatened, an image that was threatened that needed to be protected. Um, the Cold War child, because of the nature of the Cold War, um, meant that the, the child actually carried a sense of eschatological fear, that there was this, that the child starts to mean something more than the positive future that the nation can produce. Instead, the child starts to symbolize the potential death of everybody, um, because the Cold War is, uh, is a nuclear has has a nuclear has lots of hundreds of nuclear bombs underneath it right there is this terrible threat of nuclear annihilation that defines the cold war and as soon as you've got that terrible threat of nuclear annihilation underlying the way the cold war is being waged all of a sudden the child doesn't just represent something that we have to protect that we have to wage and we have to keep the soviets away from the kids we have to keep the americans away from the kids in order to protect them and protect the nation the child also has the potential to die in a terrible nuclear holocaust mm-hmm. and when the children die we all die right, right? Um, everybody dies the nation dies the people die everyone dies so there's the shift in the sense of like before the child stood for the nation right yeah. and you can think of it in terms of not only the future of the nation but all of the health of the nation right. et cetera, et cetera. but here it, it sounds like there's a shift from the nation to uh, more a representation of civilization in and of itself. Yeah, although I think um, in some ways, you know, given that we're talking about the 50s and 60s, it's still wrapped up in the nation, right? Yeah. Like uh, people um, uh, are, f- I think, first and foremost thinking about how if the children die in a nuclear war, then America dies in a nuclear war and America no longer you know, comes in no longer sort of exists anymore because the, ch- the next generation, which of course is the only generation that can continue the project right. is gone, right? So it's still wrapped up in that. I think it's, I mean, you sort of see that all the way up through the eighties. Uh, I don't talk about this in the book too much, but you know, if you think about that famous Sting song, I hope the Russians love their children too, right? Um, I don't know if you guys know that song from Dream of the Blue Turtles, but that's a song that you know, he wrote in a frantic effort to remind people that Russians care about kids, as though we somehow needed to be reminded that Russians care about their children. And yet I think people did sort of need to be reminded of that back in 1984, you know, um, under the Reagan, you know, the, the, the reinvigoration of the Cold War, the hotification of the, the warming of the Cold War under Reagan in the 80s. In the kind of ebb and flow of the Cold War between kind of tension and detente and tension do you see a kind of a rise and fall of the use of the child like is there so take the the what you said about yeah. the reagan do you see more of a use of children in that period as opposed to say in the 70s during detente um that's a great question i, I see a changing image of the child so uh in the 50s um when the cold war is is hot um, you see the child representing the the fear of the other, right? The fear of the enemy um, in all of the sort of multifaceted ways that that can be done. Um, 
you know, children are at risk. Children, Russian children are being turned into robots um, and they're all being brainwashed. And American kids are potentially going to get brainwashed too if we don't make sure that communist teachers get out of the classrooms. And um, we need to make sure that American kids are physically fit and all of them becoming engineers. Otherwise, we need, we're not going to be able to compete with this in the space race. And, you know, it continues on and on. Um, if we look at examples of Eastern Europe, look at what the Russians are doing to, to the kids under their control. It, of course, the story is exactly the same in the other direction. If we sort of look at the Russian end, the Russian rhetoric is the same. It's just flipped. Um, by the time we get to the 60s, though, when detente kicks off, the image of the child shifts to um, being both in the United States and in the Soviet Union, um, uh, the child as international emissary of peace. Mm -hmm. Um, and children become activists for the promotion of this sort of pro-peace rhetoric. Right. So when you see detente, when you see normalization of relations, you actually see a concurrent um, internationalization of the child's image. Uh -huh. uh, and then I think it, 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 it recedes again when we get to the 80s and there's a, you know, a battening down of the hatches or a, a raising of the of the, you know, the battens um, to protect the kids again in the 80s. Um, and, you know, you see that in all kinds of ways. I, I just finished an article with Diplomatic History on Samantha Smith. I don't, you guys maybe don't, maybe remember, anybody remember her? But, um, you know, she was this symbol of, she was this very contested symbol of what childhood meant in the 1980s um, because she herself was, uh, an emissary of peace, right? She wrote this letter to Andropov saying, why do you want to blow us up? And Andropov wrote back and said, well, no, actually, I, I don't want to blow you up. Why don't you come visit Russia and the Soviet Union and see how nice it is? And she went and had this amazing time. And, you know, whereas very few Americans remember Samantha Smith, unless you are yourself a Russianist, um, every Russian remembers Samantha Smith. Every Russian remembers her. She was a big hero. Um, she ended up dying a very sad untimely death at the age of uh at the age of uh, 15 um in a plane accident um uh with her with her father but um uh for the russians she for the soviets she continued to symbolize this this really critical uh sort of commitment to peace um which of course is a common common rhetorical thread throughout the history of the soviet Union, right? Particularly um, in the Cold War era, but in the United States, she represented. Um, she didn't represent peace, right? She represented a young American girl who had been duped and brainwashed by, by Soviet um, propagandists, uh, and you know her father, her her father, her mother and father were both, you know, left wing. Um, professors from Maine, um, and that didn't do them any good either. But uh, anyway, that's that's off the topic of the book. But it's going to come out in, in diplomatic history, like in two weeks. So, wow. so, so that that leads to another question, and something that you've already mentioned: the fact that you know, in in the Soviet Union, it has a discourse and understanding of the American child, and in America, we have we had an, in the Cold War had an understanding of the Soviet child. But yeah. nevertheless, you said there's a lot of convergence. Mm -hmm. So. How did those? What were some of those understandings, and how did they converge? As you said, how they flipped. Both sides, uh, you know, construct these images. Are you asking sort of what's the image of the other child? Yes, that they're constructing yes, the other side? yes. So uh, for the Soviets, right, it was really critical that the American child, in Soviet domestic language and rhetoric, it was really important that the American child carry particular traits in order to substantiate the way that. Russian people were expected to think about the United States in general. Uh, so the child, the American child becomes a symbol for all of the systemic problems inside the US. Uh, so the American child is envisioned as violent, um, you know, gun toting and super dangerous. Um, but also uh, the white American child is envisioned as being racist and um, uh, unable to even see beyond the the horizon of their racism because of the purveying sort of systemic problems in American American society in the 1950s. Uh, 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 African American children are portrayed as as being you know deeply subjugated um, and you know the victims of perpetual violence. Um, at the same time, from the American perspective, there's a pitching of the the other Russian, other Soviet child as, uh, you know, robotic, 
um, brainwashed, um, uh, incapable of independent thought, uh, uh, terrified um, to speak independently when they do have independent thought. Interestingly, though, there there's a there's a flip side to both of those narratives. So while the Americans, I mean, while the Soviets are pitching the American children as violent and um, and racist, they also uh, can't help but notice, particularly in the later um, after Stalin's death and in the late the later fifties, that American kids seem to be more capable of innovative thought. They're they tend to be a little bit more creative. They come up with interesting solutions. They're not all getting the same education. They're not all thinking the same way. And so, as the thaw kicks off in the late nineteen fifties in the Soviet Union. Um, when the thaw kicks off in the late 1950s in the Soviet Union, you have uh, people increasingly acknowledging that there might be some redeeming value to the way that American kids are growing up. And interestingly, it happens exactly the same on the other side. So the Americans, while they are arguing that the Soviet kids are all robots um, and brainwashed, they're also like, oh, but they're also publishing 30, they're also um, uh, graduating 30,000 engineers every year. And it turns out they're super disciplined and they don't have, you know, nearly the the kind of um, like like juvenile delinquency hooligan problems that we have. Interestingly, the Soviets are busy saying it doesn't look like like oh God looks like we have really bad hooligan problems. Like everybody's freaking out about the teenagers in the 1950s being hooligans. Um, everybody on both sides is freaking out about the hooligan children. They're also um, all freaking out about bad parents, about lazy drunk. Uh, absentee parenting. Um, and, and of course, in the context of the Cold War, this is really critical because if the parents aren't raising their children correctly um, and the Cold War is showing no signs of ending anytime soon, then what is this, what are we gonna, like who's gonna actually man the ramparts when these hooligan kids are put in charge? But, but is, this, is this also because in the, by the late 50s and into the 60s, it gets, Wrapped, the Cold War is, is wrapped up and driven by the, the technological competition in the space race. So sure. now we need to produce certain types of children that are that can be, you know, technological experts, engineers, scientists, and therefore the problems, the, the anxieties, and the moral panic about their being raised and educated is on the becomes on the forefront. Certainly, right. It's very much about making sure these kids are getting educated correctly. Also, though. Um, particularly on the Soviet side, there's real concern that the rote education system that was so integral to the Stalinist sort of universe has got to get reformed because you've got kids who are really just learning rote. They're just learning to regurgitate. They're not learning to think innovatively. And that becomes a real concern you know, for sociologists and educators because if you're gonna have real innovation in the space race, you, know, you, you can't have everybody learning to think the same way. Were the Soviets, I mean, because it's not so much on, well, I guess thinking about, say, the Red Scare in America, but also the Soviet obsession with the penetration of Western culture. Capitalist encirclement. Yeah, and do, do you have certain anxieties on both sides that are similar in terms of the corruption of youth from without? Yeah, right. So, um, yeah, both sides are um, very concerned that there are, uh, insidious ways that the other side is making its way into the into the home, right, into the private sphere of the home or into the classroom, right. Um, in the United States, obviously, it's the you know the loyalty oaths and the tracking down of teachers during the Red Scare, which is such an integral part of that American narrative in the 1950s. Um, in the the Soviet Union. Um, the concern is more about Western media, um, the encroachment of Western media um, in various ways into the lives of, of, of Soviet children. And that doesn't really take off until a little bit later um, when that media gets allowed in, right, in the, in the early 60s. So when you, when you look at, at the, both the Soviet and American use of the child, which one do you think was more effective in positioning their respective child as a representation of, kind of international peace and innocence? 
I mean, as a as a Russian scholar who has looked at both, I if I'm looking at it objectively, I think that the Soviets did a better job because they were so uniform, right? It was such a committed image that they stuck to. I mean, all the way back into the 20s, right? This image is already being produced and certainly at the height of high Stalinism um, after the Second World War, right? The Soviet Union as the bringer of peace to Europe, um, the, the, the normal, you know, the bringer of, of happy lives to children. And of course, there's the great thank you, Comrade Stalin, for our happy childhood. But even that continues on into this great advocate, this belief, right, that children are going to be, are going to be best able to live peaceful lives under the Soviet umbrella, right? And if you think about all the Soviet multfilmi, right, that do this, right, this is, a, this is, a, this is the trend. Nonetheless, having grown up as a child in the, in the United States, like if I hadn't studied the Soviet Union, um, having grown up just in the West, um, I would say, no, I, I, have, I had no idea that the Soviet, like there was no image of the Soviet child as being well cared for, um, for me growing up as a kid. In fact, I think one of the reasons I became a Russianist was because um, I was so deeply worried about Soviet children. I was so deeply worried that they were, you know, that their teachers were being shot and that that they were, um, you know, being forced to recite mantras of fealty to, you know, whoever the general secretary was. And these are things that I would, this is, that's the narrative of the Soviet child that I was fed as a child, you know, in Reader's Digest and Life magazine. So it really seriously depends on where you were. Now, I think though that in the big sort of international stay on the big international stage, I think the Soviets did a far better job, right? If now that I'm looking at Soviet and American propaganda to the post-colonial world, that's the next project. I'm absolutely seeing the Soviets be far better at it than the Americans. Ironically, right? It, somehow that that beautiful message. Like, it's just a message. You know, Soviet foreign policy was often had nothing to do with the advocating of peace, right? It had nothing to do with that, nor did American foreign policy either, right? It's just, a, it's by and large an empty message coming from both places. Now, so far, you've mostly been talking about how the image of the child was an, an object right it's about educating them it's about nurturing them it's about protecting them uh it's about keeping them you know safe from threats mm -hmm. but and and a little bit you talked about the the role of them as future engineers and and you know fighting the cold war but the child as you point out was also mobilized mm -hmm. in the cold war particularly through youth organizations like the boy scouts or the young pioneers what is talk about how the child became a kind of agent for the Cold War to be mobilized and harnessed and deployed? Okay, so the, both the, you know, we, we think of the Boy Scouts and um, as being sort of separated from the American government. They, it's true that they are an independent organization, but in fact, the commander in chief of the Boy Scouts is the president of the United States and um, vast amounts of their uh, funding um, comes from, um, the U.S. And so where, you know, the draw, drawing of correlations between the pioneers and the scouts, you have to be a little careful. Almost every kid in the Soviet Union was a pioneer. Not every kid was a Boy Scout or Girl Scout. Um, so, you know, you have to be a little careful about drawing those parallels. But both, I found, were... Um, uh, were mobilized. And they were mobilized in large ways, particularly in the 1960s, to address the very critiques that were being levied at them internationally from the other side. So, uh, for instance, um, the while the U.S. is busy levying critiques at the Soviet Union for raising robotic brainwashed children, um, the pioneers are busy heading off every summer to Artek, to the great the great pioneer camp um, on the Black Sea uh, to invite international um, guests to come and visit and to see how free and beautiful the place is um, and to really project a counter narrative of what Soviet childhood looks like. So you actually have the mobilization of children domestically to, to, to create a counter narrative. And the same happens in um, the United States, the Boy Scouts, are um, mobilized to go off to the massive jamborees that happen every 
every four years. Um, and at those jamborees, increasingly throughout the 1960s, more and more international visitors come. And Norman Rockwell, the great so the great socialist realist painter, um, you know, paints these incredible, that was a joke, um, <laughs> uh, uh, paints these incredible paintings of, you know, of Boy Scouts flanked by the various, the Boy Scouts from the various allied um, countries, you know, that are allies with the United States in, in degrees of their connections to the U.S. Very Soviet, yeah. right? Like it's an incredibly Soviet thing to do, right? If you've ever read your Dovlatov or something, right? That like every, you know, in, when they published in the Soviet Union, when you listed off, if you were a, a journalist in the Soviet Union in the 60s and the 70s, you, the way you listed off the allied nations of Eastern Europe was always done um, by how good the relations happened to be um, with the Soviet Union at the moment, at the time with Russia. So, you know, like Yugoslavia was always at the end of the list. Hungary was usually right near the end of the list, right? Um, uh, East Germany was usually at the top of the list, right? Because their relations were usually better. Um, so uh, it was very similar um, that Rockwell would do this. But point being that these kids are being mobilized um, to counter these narratives and to produce, certainly in the 60s, this vision of, for the Boy Scouts, it's, look, we, um, you know, we are, we are absolutely are committed to international peace. We aren't racist. So there's huge push um, in the Boy Scout literature and in iconography um, to promote the vision of the African-American Boy Scout as being fully integrated into American society. Um, and, and so it's this, it's this frantic effort to counter these narratives and then to promote that internationally. Our understanding of the mid to late 60s, of course, is, is usually through a framework of youth, mm -hmm. youth rebellion, right. uh, counterculture. Yeah. Uh, what about the image of the child? Yeah, so the the whole second half of the book is really about this. Um, what I found in this project was that it's not as though there's this static image of the child that's getting produced by the Soviet Union and the United States that remains um, super fungible and easy for the Soviet um, and U.S. sort of powers or you know the powers that be um, to manipulate. Um, it, it becomes increasingly difficult, in fact, in the 1960s for both the Soviet Union and the United States to continue to project these images of sort of the child in frantic need of national protection. I mean, the, the original sort of the status quo message was, if you want your children to be safe, then you will go along with the policies that we, the nation, are embracing. You will, in fact, allow increasing surveillance to happen of you and your family. You will allow that because it's going to protect your kids. Um, you will allow a certain circumscribing of your civil rights to happen because it's got to happen. It's unfortunate, but there you have it. It's the Cold War. We need to protect our children. You will allow um, uh, education, the education of your children to change. You will allow your lives to change, right, vis-a-vis -vis your family. You will allow the government to encroach in the lives of your family in all kinds of ways. But by the time you get to the 1960s, you have all of these groups, both in the Soviet Union and in the United States, who are increasingly thinking that, in fact, the source of the Cold War threat is the state itself, and that the children are being way more threatened by the government by their own respective governments than they are by you know some esoteric distant vision of the cold war enemy uh and we see this happening on both sides it's it's far easier to see on the u.s side right than it is on the soviet side um in the united states you've got you know the committee for a sane nuclear policy which was the big anti-nuclear movement run by norman cousins in the 1960s uh pitch literally just using images of children in the in their archives you can see them having conversations about how they're going to use the child as a silver bullet to convince people to get on board with the anti-nuclear movement in the United States and it's incredibly successful Dr. Spock gets gets involved in a big way um, but it also happens, um, and of course, uh, and on the U.S. side, also Women's Strike for Peace does the same thing, right? These are women who take their kids out on the lawn in front of, in, into D.C., or they go on marches in the middle of Manhattan with their children in tow, um, frantic about the um, the presence of strontium-90 in their milk, 
right, about the the evidence of the damaging effects of uh, nuclear fallout um, on children and their development. So on, in the U.S., you have overt sort of explicit use, um, articulated use of the image of the child in order to actually counter and protest um, U.S. policy, uh, U.S. Cold War policy. In the Soviet Union, though, where you would think it would be far more difficult to happen, it does, in fact, happen. And it happens in circumscribed ways. Um, you know, you can't, in the Soviet Union, you can't have people out marching with their kids in tow, you know, across Red Square. Like, it's just not going to happen. Um, but instead, what we see is that um, during the late 1950s and the early 60s, in the period we call the Thaw, which is after Khrushchev gave his famous um, de-Stalinization, speech, his famous critique of Stalin and cultural openness happened. Um, in that period of the thaw, you've got um, writers and filmmakers who are mobilizing the image of the child in these incredible ways um, to uh, specifically the image child. It, like, it's, it's an astonishing, overwhelming amount of films made about the images of ch made about children in order to create these tacit critiques of, of Soviet policy. Um, uh, the late uh, scholar Josephine Wall wrote a, a bit about this stuff, and then I definitely, you know, just sort of decided to, to dive very deeply into her, into, you know, into that, that film universe where we see people um, mobilizing those images. Now, another thing you note is that, you know, on the one hand, you have the Soviet child and the American child, but of course, by the late 60s, another figure enters in and that is the Vietnamese child yeah. around the Vietnam War. Right. So how did the how did each side configure this Vietnamese child and what role did the Vietnamese own image of their children also play as a as a counter to the Soviet and American? Right, effort? as a real foil. Yeah, yeah. Um so the one place I found where the image of the, the Soviet the Soviet image of the child and the American image of the child really clashed is in Vietnam um, in the late sixties uh, both the Soviet Union and the United States had massive propaganda pro projects um, uh, in North and South Vietnam um, throughout the course of the war. And both of them, um, you know, pushed this, this message that the only way to protect the, Viet the, the poor children of, of Vietnam um, was to uh, buy into either American or Soviet patronage. Um, now, there were all kinds of problems with that, right? Um, there really wasn't much Soviet patronage that happened in Vietnam. Now, Americans loved to think that the Soviets were funding the North Vietnamese, um, that were, you know, that we were sending, you know, vast amounts of, uh, that we were in fact sending our soldiers. But the, this, the Soviet involvement in North Vietnam, interventions in North Vietnam, were actually quite limited. Um, it was far more the Chinese who were who were participating in that conflict. No, the Americans didn't know that, but the Soviets did, and the Vietnamese did. Um, and you know the Soviet the Soviet pitch of you need to you need to buy into our project you need to buy into our patronage felt increasingly empty when the Soviets continuously refused to really participate, and of obviously um, the American uh, message that you know you need to buy into American patronage in Vietnam is also problematic um, because of you know the images of children slaughtered in My Lai. Um, children slaughtered at the at the hands of American soldiers. So, for on on both in both the U.S. and the Soviet messages, there were serious problems. There, there were the reality just didn't match up with the message, um, and people were increasingly aware of it. The people who made the most use of that were the North Vietnamese. The NLF or COSVIN was the the organization in charge of North Vietnamese propaganda, and. They basically made the argument that um, neither the neither the Soviets or the Americans were to be believed, um, and that in fact only the North Vietnamese had any kind of real path to peace, you know, that would work, um, and it, it worked. Like it was an astonishingly successful critique um, that they managed to levy in both sides, you know, against both right. sides. But the South did the South have also a discourse of this? And no, it's mostly the North. It's mostly coming from the North. The um, Interestingly, I'm seeing this now in my current research in the Middle East. You know, we all love to think of, we don't love to do this, but we think of the Cold War um, as being an event that was always, even for the for populations in the post-colonial world 
was always about sort of deciding between the East and the West, deciding between the Soviets and the Americans. But in fact, what I'm seeing over and over again, that is, it's a rejection of both. Um, and, and that the Soviets and Americans were frequently seen by post-colonial populations as just being uniformly the West. And all of it, not all of it worthy of rejection. You know, we, in the United States, particularly in the 1960s around the Vietnam War, there were images of children, um, some of them Vietnamese children or young people being brutalized by the American war, really catalyzing politics in the United States against the war. Were there any uh, images of children in the Soviet side that kind of catalyzed um, certain political campaigns or movements? Yeah, so um, uh, Nancy and I, uh, we're actually kind of talking about that a little bit because it, it you know, you, you couldn't, you couldn't publish that kind of thing um, in the same kind of way in the Soviet Union in the 60s. Like it just couldn't, it wasn't going to get past the censors. Um, but you could have poets and filmmakers um, using images of children uh, in ways that everyone would know how to read. Um, that when people went to go see films like Ivanova Dietstva and they saw, this is Ivan's Childhood by Tarkovsky, and, and they saw um, a, a child whose life has been destroyed, um, a, an entire generation, not only whose life, but whose future has been destroyed by this war, for which there is nothing redemptive, right? There is nothing redemptive to come out of that, this big spoiler, but that kid has a bad time at the end. It, it doesn't go well. Um, and that whole generation, for it doesn't go well. It com goes completely counter to the narrative that had heretofore been put forward by the Soviet government, that the, that the, the Great Patriotic War was this, this great heroic moment, that the Soviet Union had recovered from it, that they were rebuilding. Um, and, then in, in, you know, and then Tarkovsky makes this film, right, which sort of says, no, in fact, we are all destroyed. And in fact, there's no future to be had for us because we were so destroyed. And that's one of that's one of arguably 20 or 30. Elem Klimov makes some really great, hilarious movies um, that are really explicit critiques of the pioneers um, and their, you know, nationalist mantras. So it does happen. It just happens in tentative ways. Now, there is one time when we do see it more explicitly, and it's during the Prague Spring in 1968, where you actually have some protests where and in, in 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 the in the few protests that do manage to happen in the soviet union um they all talk about children all they talk about is children they talk about the the dead children in 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 prague um it becomes a standard line right that's put forward by the protesters so even they are are using that and you know and and there's a reason why those images that you think of, right? The napalmed girl, um, the Milai images, there's a reason, and the Kent State one, there's a reason why those resonated. And I think it's because, like, I've, like we sort of have agreed here, the, it is the children that define us. If we can't protect our children, then who are we, right? And do we really deserve to be here um, becomes the big question. And that's, what those, that's the question that those photos are asking us, right? So when you, you mentioned a, a bit about films and in the Soviet uh, context that where you get, um, you know, a discourse of the child that is a kind of a critique of the state, right? As you said, it, there's this convergence where the state becomes the problem in the 1960s. Can you talk more about these kind of ambiguous spaces and where you don't, you have the representation and the deployment of children where you don't have this uh, us-them binary of American-Soviet. Right, where it's not necessarily a critique of the state either, right? right? Um, there's, there's something else happening. Um, it's almost a, an expression of humanity, <laughs> of, of, of a kind of thinking that um, the, Soviet the Soviet censors uh, wouldn't be sure whether or not they should say yes to. Um, something like that, right? Uh, yeah, no, and we definitely see that um, in in the Soviet films. You see it for sure uh, in the '60s, but you, you you know you see it in in the ways that we just talked about, where um, you have uh, uh, you have child protagonists who, on the one hand, are very are very committed to being good pioneers, and um, 
seem to be very much um, committed to the to the ideals of the Pioneer Project, um, and yet at the same time, um, the ways that they go about uh, pursuing those ideals are not, in fact, the ways that that are state sanctioned. Um, so they they find workarounds. Um, they they do things that definitely are not prescribed by the state, and yet um, in the end they are they are any no one would no one would call them anything but but protagonists they're still heroes even if their methods are, are are unorthodox and and so yeah i mean you have these lovely moments where you see independent thought happening um and and it's ha it happens in the in the um in the american context too where uh american um mothers will take their children to the floor of congress um, uh, show up, you know, 20 moms with 30 kids screaming on the floor of Congress. And on the one hand, right, they're, they're trying to sort of bring home to their congressional leaders, you need to be thinking about our children and they're, like, we're worried that they're drinking strontium 90 and all going to have cancer by the time they're 15. But at the same time, they're participating in this, they're participating, right? Like they aren't, they aren't trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They're that was a bad pun. They're, 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 they're participating in the process, right? They're showing a belief that the process itself can work. Um, I think interestingly, and I know I don't talk necessarily enough about this in the book, that maybe it's in these, it's in these liminal, these pivotal images, images of the child where, where one is capable of actually embracing that kind of ambiguity because there's, there's so much going on, right? On the one hand, you've got the state that cares deeply and there's this rhetoric of the state and its connection to the child. On the other hand, the child has a family and that family exists in a private space. And the child is, is him or herself an individual capable of, of thought as well. So there's all these varying levels of sort of functioning, right? As, a, as, a, as an actor, as a citizen. Um, and, and at what regard, you know, depending on what level you're functioning at, you might you might be embracing or not embracing one vision or another. So yeah, that's great. In, in terms of these exchanges between you know, Soviet and Americans, were there instances where Soviet children and American children kind of came together in a kind of, in a dialogue? Yeah, there absolutely were. Um, in the, and it shows up in interesting moments. So whereas in the 1950s, you have both the United States and the Soviet Union constantly harping away at the differences between their children by the time you get to the late 1960s you know when societies on both sides are both sides are in flux um you've got you know mainstream magazines like parent parenting magazine publishing front page you know images of soviet and, and american children coming together um and mothers getting together, Soviet and American mothers getting together to talk about how ideology doesn't matter because all they really care about is their children. Um, and that they, in fact, are are choosing to ignore the distinctions that that their governments have have been building. Um, in in instead, they're they're paying attention to this shared common love of children, right? So ironic, there's a lovely irony here that, um, you can use the love of the child, right? The care for the child as a way to to bat to build up, right? To 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 build up your armaments against the other, right? But in the end, if you can all agree that you all care about the child, then those those bastions fall away yeah. pretty quickly. Um, and so it's you know one of the arguments I make in this book is that this image as staid as it may seem, is deeply open to revision. And in the late 1980s, I think the same thing happens. And it's it's not surprising, right? Because it's happening in response to the heating of the hot Cold War and the terror of the Cold War, right, that, that came back um, in the early 80s. I, I, I grew up in Alabama, admittedly. So there's that, but I um, hit under desks. We did nuclear um, d drills uh, in the early 80s when I was a child, um, and that um, had a massive indelible impact on me. I think I have I have a little bit of PTSD from um, imagining myself as a nuclear uh, 
shadow. Yeah, the day after, right? Yeah, no, we all saw that. We all, the whole nation <laughs> suffered from PTSD after watching the day yeah, after. Right. I remember where I was when I saw that yeah. movie too. <laughs> Didn't sleep for three months. Yeah. There is an interesting trope in, in the American understanding of Russia and the Soviet system in that the communism is kind of an outside force that comes in that corrupts essentially good Russians that are like us. Um, was there a rhetoric of that in terms of ch children? Absolutely, yeah. So the the Russian children grew up believing that American kids, American people, were generally good, hardworking, working class people who were exploited um, by the horrendous capitalist system that provided them with no education and no health care. Um, and no job security and no pension. Um, and the American kids, like you were just saying, were raised uh, to believe that the Russian people were very good, were in fact industrious, proto-capitalist uh, even. Um, and then if we look at Russia in the 1920s um, and, and during the new economic policy you know, period. In fact, if they had just been allowed to continue to liberalize, they would have become a good capitalist country. Um, but, uh, and if you look at Ukrainian farmers and their independent streak, right? Russians are good independent thinking people who just want to take care of their families and have a mom and pop store around the corner, just like us. But unfortunately, there is this insidious communist system that circumscribes them and, and keeps them from being able to self-actualize. What's really messed up is that both stories are kind of true. <laughs> and finally, um, what about today? I mean, mm -hmm. we see the, I don't know if you, you've you know, paid attention to this or not to comment, but you know, the child still has a function. I mean, one of the things that of course comes to mind is during the 2016 presidential election, Trump's rhetoric was usually referred to as, I don't want my kids to hear the president say X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. um, there's, of course, the whole discourse about guns and, and, and school mm -hmm. shootings. Um, do, we it in, do we see a difference in the use of the child? Is it then the Cold War? Is it still tapping into some of the, the tropes that existed before? Well, I mean, I think at its core, the, the reason why people continue to talk about the child is because it is a it is a quick way to talk about identity right mm -hmm. the child provides a quick way to talk about who you are mm -hmm. um and the kinds of priorities that you carry now we all agree like everyone you anyone you talk to will say they care about children um but um uh, the way that they care about children, what, how they prioritize the caring about children becomes a way to define who they are, what their political um, affiliations are. But on top of that, it's important to remember that the critique of people not caring about children is really, really hard to refute. Um, I just last week got interviewed by Vice and Vox and one other, and Politico, was Vice, Vox and Politico about the child sex ring scandals that have sort of hit the news in recent weeks and it's a part of this sort of alt-right um you know conspiracy theory stuff right that yeah. there are these you know pizza gate stuff right people with pizza joints who are running child sex rings in the basement and then they go and look at it in fact there's no basement mm -hmm. you know there actually is no basement um but the reason why that works, the reason why this image, this this sort of this conspiracy stuff continues to pop up and continues to work is because as soon as you can label someone as a predator of the child, you can do anything to them. Right. Right. Predators of children can be destroyed. They stop being human, right? right? So uh, it's a it's an incredibly culturally powerful label yeah. um, that as soon as you attach Donald Trump doesn't, you know, he's he's inappropriate for my children. Then then that makes him beyond the pale. Yeah. That places him beyond the yeah. pale. Yeah, and this also in Russia exists with uh, yeah. the homosexual propaganda, yeah. you know, moral panic as well. It's about protecting children from, you know, infection from these people. Yeah, and it pops up again and again. If you think about it, um, in the eighties, it it didn't just pop up in the Cold War. It popped up on, uh, you know, related to dungeons and the moral panic yeah, the of more, D and D. Right, Remember or, that? or heavy metal, yeah. Or <laughs> heavy metal, right? Yeah. Uh, or the video games, right? The highly violent video games, and 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 in fact, I think that we are potentially right now at a heightened state of this because. Um, of the school shootings that keep happening. I, I asked my own children just the other day, what is in your lifetime, 
so far? Um, what, what are the moments that you all share? You know, for me, it's the Challenger blowing up. It's I, everyone my age remembers where they were when the Challenger blew up or 9-11, certainly amazingly current, like freshmen in college were born after 9-11, yes. amazingly. Um, but uh, uh, my children say it's the school shootings. That's, those are the moments that that have that, that they all have collective memories of. And that reflects a wide sort of cultural moment, I think, for us, where we are all desperately panicking to figure out how to how to help the children. Yeah. And we are defining ourselves more and more by whether or not you're someone who cares about the children or someone who doesn't care about the children. So the fight over gun control right, right now. Right. That's a fight over whether or not you care about kids. Right, right. But but it seems to me too, just to to ask another thing that whereas in the Cold War there seemed to be a a more uniformed image of yeah. the child, whereas and you, I think this alludes to the breakdown you see in the beginning in the '60s, yeah. where now the the image of the child is, I mean. It's it's a weapon, but there are many weapons. It's fractured. It's deeply partisan. Yeah, deeply no question partisan. about yeah. it. No question. Like everybody about is it. claiming the child from a different direction. Yeah. No, I, I think you could go all the way to Nixon in the U.S. constant, you know, instance, and start this. Start that. There are really. I mean, it starts in the '60s, right? That partisanship happens in the 60s with women strike for peace and saying um you know heading out into, into the streets to say you know what i you know hey hey lbj how many kids did you kill today um this is a moment when uh u.s populations u.s activist groups are using images of children to actually critique the state and that's happening in the soviet context i think it's happening even more now right if you think about the fight over pussy riot right in the Soviet Union now. In Russia. I mean, in Russia now. <laughs> Sorry, I get them all mixed up. In Russia right now. Um, you know, our, you know, a lot of that's wrapped up in the Im the, the, the messages that they are conveying to, to Russia's children, right. you know, at least in the domestic press. Right. One more thing I want to yeah. say, though, and that is that the big sort of takeaway of this book, and I think one thing that maybe is worthwhile thinking about in terms of how we all think about pr propaganda and the way we all think about information is that what I found is that there that the people who were producing the powers that were really producing these images, the governments that were producing these images, who were doing something very similar for very similar reasons, actually had way more in common with each other than they did with their intended audiences. That the Soviet Union, the Soviet, the Soviet government. And the American government and the people who supported the American government's policies were actually had way more in common with each other in terms of their shared image production projects. They sh they owned the means of image production yeah. to sort of put it in post-structural right, terms. Right. Like they, these were populations who the the folks in power are the ones who own the means of image production, and they have a whole lot more in common with each other than they do with the intended consumers of those images. We in this room, I would assume are by and large the intended consumers of these images, although you and I doing this podcast makes us producers, yeah. right? Um, and maybe in the in the internet world, this that you know that dialectic needs to be rethought a little bit. Right. Um, although I'm certainly of the belief that in the end we're all still just building our chains. Yeah. Um, but the uh, nonetheless the there is there is something to there's a there's a way in which we all need to be very wary of those who produce the images that we are intended to consume whether we're in the west or in the east whether we're in north korea or you know even in some happy place like new zealand you know like we all need to be careful <laughs> anyway that was Margaret Peacock, an associate professor and director of undergraduate studies in the department of history at the university of alabama her research interests range from the history of the Soviet Union, the Cold War, the Middle East, childhood, and media. She's the author of Innocent Weapons, the Soviet and American Politics of Childhood in the Cold War, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2015. And her new book that is still in the works is tentatively titled Frequencies of Deceit, Propaganda in the Post-Truth Middle East. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, 
please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. So cool. Problem child, problem child.